This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. The rollout of COVID-19 vaccines has been a welcome sight, to say the least. While we're still a long way from herd immunity and cases are still rising at an alarming rate, at least vaccination offers a glimmer of hope that there is a pathway back to some semblance of normalcy. But the presence of a vaccine alone won't cure all that ails us. In particular, COVID has put a spotlight on the health disparities and issues of racism, poverty, and access to care that continue to plague black and brown communities in America. For example, across the country, the African-American population is lagging far behind in terms of vaccination rates. This is despite the fact that black Americans have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, contracting the virus, getting seriously ill, and dying at higher rates than the general population. The Biden administration is taking steps to address inequity and improve access to vaccine, but access is only part of the issue. For Black Americans, there is a deep-seated and justifiable distrust in the healthcare system and with government health programs. That distrust needs to be overcome. Here to talk with me about this issue is Adrienne Thornton, an infection preventionist at Children's Minnesota. In addition to her work at the hospital, Adrienne is also involved in a number of community outreach activities, working to answer questions and help increase confidence in the COVID-19 vaccine. Adrian Thornton, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here in this space and have this conversation with you. My first question is really just looking for a general reaction from you as somebody who's worked in the healthcare area for so long. What's it been like for you to see the rollout of this event that is unlike anything we've ever seen before? and to see the way that it has disproportionately impacted underserved communities throughout the country. The health disparities that we're seeing um, related to COVID-19 are nothing new for the Black and brown communities. We've had these health disparities exist for decades. But what happened is that when COVID um, came to town, it shined a bright light on them. And people actually started to listen and pay attention, which is something that hasn't happened in the past. And so it was really um, devastating for me in the beginning because, you know, a lot of Black people were saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not worried about COVID because Black people don't get COVID. And, you know, those types of myths were circulating within the community. And it was just very disheartening because You know, I, as a medical professional, I'm looking at the data, I'm seeing the patient stats, and I know that Black and brown people were being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. We had more disease per capita. We had more critical disease. We had more ICU hospitalizations. Um, We had more death related to COVID-19 when you look at age-adjusted rates. And so, it was really difficult for me in the beginning because it was, you know, my first question was, well, how do we get the message out that yes, black people do indeed get COVID and you need to be careful, you know, because one of the reasons why we're disproportionately impacted is because of the comorbidities associated with more critical illness when you have COVID-19. And black and brown people disproportionately have those comorbidities as well. So now, in addition to having the health disparity from COVID, 
the health disparities from the comorbidities are now getting worse because people are not going in to see their primary providers as much as they should um, to make sure that they're managing those diseases. So it was kind of this snowball effect where the comorbidities were a small rolling snowball for several decades, and the snowball got exponentially bigger when COVID happened. For people who don't understand the idea of comorbidities, can you just explain that? Yeah, so comorbidities are diseases that um, are really closely related to increased um, death and severe illness. And so those are things like um, high blood pressure, heart disease, and especially diabetes. And so those three diseases alone, they have been known to cause more severe illness and death in the black and brown communities. They're easy to manage, but for various social reasons, they have not been managed well in those communities. And so as a result, we um, tend to see more disease in those populations and the disease severity is worse in those populations. Where does that misinformation about, oh, well, COVID doesn't impact the Black community as much, where does that come from? Was that a social media thing or was it just a lack of message from the top or how does that work its way into the community? Um, Either and or. (laughs) So... (laughs) If you think about it, when we initially heard about COVID, we heard about it from China. And China is a pretty homogenous community overall. So, of course, you're not going to hear a lot about Black and brown people having COVID and dying from COVID in China because they don't have a huge population there. And then when it spread to countries like the U.K., You know, there were black and brown people dying from COVID and getting COVID, but that is not what you heard about. You know, everybody on the news is white. Everybody they're talking about in the studies is white. Nobody in in this science is black or brown. So why should we care? And that wasn't the truth. And for instance, you know, people felt like they weren't hearing about COVID-19 in Africa, so it must not be impacting us. Well, the health system there is different. And a lot of the countries in Africa don't have the infrastructure to report that or even to monitor it, much less report it. And so a lot of that really impacted the message that was getting out to our black and brown communities. And then when the message finally came that, oh, no, it impacts us. And boy, is it big and is it you know disproportionate? Well, it was too late because people were already convinced that they couldn't get COVID. A lot of people like to use herbal treatments to um, deal with, you know, different um, ailments. And so, you know, there is a fairly large contingency of people that feel like they can naturally combat COVID-19. And that just is not true. It's been proven that it's not true, but it is very hard to change the minds of people who believe that. And then there's also, you know, fear. Um, Because the story changed from the beginning until now, and with our history with the health community, a lot of Black people just don't trust what they're being told at this point. And so it's very hard to convince them that what they're hearing is true. And then it doesn't help if, say, the president says it's going to go away and tries to downplay it. And then we get conflicting messages about masks and things like that. I think it's almost like we did everything we could to disproportionately impact black and brown communities. Exactly. You know, when you have mixed messages like that, 
that just feeds into the fear and the distrust that you have in the communities. And so that was a huge problem, you know, for healthcare providers. You know, how do you get the message out there? How do you counter this incorrect information? You know, I'm hoping that going forward, we'll be able to turn it around and have one consistent message. And then people will be able to see that, you know, we're all coming together for the same cause in the same way. The message is consistent. And hopefully that will help allay some of those fears and distrust. So messaging is one thing, but then there also had to have been a reality that started to creep into the picture as people, particularly in black and brown communities, started to see loved ones get very, very sick. Was there that transition? You know, I don't think we've transitioned to that yet. I think we're still transitioning. You know, there are still people who feel like, for instance, over the Thanksgiving holiday, even though it was recommended that people, you know, stay home, don't get together, there were tons of family gatherings. You know, you could still see videos on Facebook of um, black and brown people going out and partying, you know, and they would be in a party scene with, you know, a ton of other people. Nobody had on a mask. There was no social distancing. And so I think we're still transitioning in that. I think it is hitting home more now because people, you know, are, are actually experiencing it for themselves. But we still have a a long way to go because there are still a fair number of people who still don't necessarily believe that it exists. They believe it's a hoax and or they believe that they can protect themselves and their families from getting COVID without doing anything that's been recommended. So still in the transition phase, but hopefully um, I think it's getting better. I think people are getting the message and they're understanding the severity and the way it impacts um, our communities, but we're going to have to continue to beat the drum of the message of, you know, this does impact us and impacts us severely and you need to do your part to prevent transmission. Have you spoken with families who have been impacted, who are now reflecting on, wow, I didn't realize, I wish that I had taken this more seriously. And then can those families be almost ambassadors to help people understand the the real human toll that's being taken. And it sounds strange to say that when 400,000 people have died, but until you've had a personal impact, sometimes it's hard to even put those numbers in perspective. Right. And, you know, I do have, you know, talked to a few people who have turned the tide, but, you know, one of the issues is it's the young people. They still have this I'm invincible mindset or, oh, it it really doesn't affect me that much because I'm younger. And so even though some of them have had COVID because they weren't that ill, um, it's still not as serious for them. And that's unfortunate. But again, you know, we just have to, to keep having these conversations. And I can tell you that unfortunately, just today, my godson, who um, is Latino, his family got together for Christmas, his grandmother at some point during the holiday season got COVID and she just passed away this morning. And so that was a huge wake up call for the family because, you know, there were instructions given, you know, some of the young people were told, well, this is what you need to do because we're all going to be together. And they didn't follow those instructions. And so now 
they had they see firsthand the impact of their poor decisions. And so hopefully they will take their story and share their story and use their story to influence other people. You know, it's de- very devastating. And so I can only hope that in her death, we will now get, you know, the message to our families and our friends um, that this is serious and it can kill people. Let's turn our attention now to the vaccine. And obviously, it's very exciting that the vaccine is rolling out and we have sort of this glimmer of hope on the horizon. But once again, we're seeing that in black and brown communities, there is distrust of the vaccine and vaccine rates are going down. And once again, it's sort of this perpetuating cycle of disparities. Can you talk to me about what's your experience and what what have you heard as you've reached out in terms of the acceptance of the vaccine? And has that started to change as more and more people get vaccinated? You know, it's kind of the, the same thing that we've heard when we're looking at medical treatment. So um, the Tuskegee experiment that happened in, in the 1930s through the 1960s. And can you explain that a little bit to people who might not be familiar with it? Sure. So in the 1930s, the Public Health Service decided that they wanted to do research on syphilis. And so what they did is they took um, a group of Black men, it was several hundred, and they actually injected them with syphilis because they wanted to watch the progression of the disease and, you know, figure out a treatment for it. Well, they developed a treatment and realized pretty early on that penicillin was effective against syphilis. But instead of treating the Black men with penicillin, they continued to um, have them suffer with syphilis so that they could continue to watch the progression of the disease. And that is unethical, but also, you know, it had a quite a negative impact on those men and their families and our communities. Um, some of the studies were double-blinded, so the men didn't know they had syphilis. And so they went on to get married and have families. And, you know, there were side effects in their children and in their wives. You know, some of their wives ended up getting syphilis. And so this went on for about 30 years. And I actually um, have Raynaud syndrome, which is where you have circulatory problems, where you have cold hands and cold feet. And um, it's pretty bad. I mean, for instance, I am standing here talking to you now and I'm standing on a heating pad. I have on wool socks and my heater is on 70, but my feet and my hands are always, always cold. And that is something that I have. All of my siblings have it, my cousins, my aunts and my uncles. And it is because um, my grandfather reportedly was a part of the Tuskegee experiment. Now, I say reportedly because he died before I was born. And as a scientist, I want to confirm everything. (laughs) So I wasn't able to confirm it with him. But my aunt, who is the oldest sibling, you know, has told she continues to tell this story. And so, you know, that's the biggest experiment in our history that we've known about and word of mouth is huge in our community. And so this story has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it is what the major, one of the major reasons why the black community does not trust medical people. They don't trust public health because, you know, these were doctors and nurses and it was the public health service, which is the government. 
And so, you know, in addition to Jim Crow laws and, you know, stealing land from black people, you know, right after slavery, now you have this. And so it kind of builds on the distrust of the government and the medical community. And so based on that, a lot of people still hearken to that now when they think about COVID and getting that vaccine. They don't trust it. They don't trust the government. You know, at first this it was, well, Black people shouldn't be in the study because they're just going to use us as guinea pigs. Then it was, well, there aren't enough Black people in the study, so we don't know how it's going to impact us. So, you know, it's kind of this, this, this whirlwind of you have to trust people at some point. And so that is what we are up against now. And so what I've been doing is, you know, myself and several other community organizations have gotten together and we are just doing everything we can with webinars and podcasts like this to get the information out there that indeed the vaccine is safe. Um, the, the vaccine is effective and black and brown people should take it. About 30 percent of the participants in the phase three trial for Pfizer Moderna and um, AstraZeneca were non-white people. So there were you know, a, a large amount of participants that were not white. And myself and my daughter are actually a part of the phase three trial for the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. So, you know, we're doing our part, you know, because I felt like I can't keep telling people, oh, you should participate, you should par- participate. And then I'm not willing to do the same thing myself. What is the most effective? Is it is it hearing directly from you as somebody who's had the vaccine? I know that a lot of leaders have taken the vaccine on on television. I remember Kamala Harris. I think they've they've shown her get both of her doses. Does that help, or is it really just you grassroots talking to people, reaching out with community organizations, and that kind of thing? How do we turn the tide on this? Um, it's going to have to continue to be both. You know, and, and there has to be people that look like them. You know, it's wonderful that others want to get out there and get the message out there. But the truth is, ethnic communities tend to um, re- respond less favorably to messages that come from people that don't look like them. And so we have to find trusted individuals in those communities to get the message out. You know, and everyone that hears me or sees me doesn't believe me, doesn't trust me just because we're both black. But there are several that do. And for the several that do, it is my responsibility to reach out to them, answer their questions, give them the the information they need so they can make an informed decision and not walk around fearful of, you know, someone that they don't know being the government and the medical community. I am intimately involved in it. I am reading the data. I am reading the studies. You know, I'm a part of the trials. And so I can tell you from my experience that what they're saying is true. You know, the the vaccine is safe. It's effective up to about 90 to 95 percent. And you can trust it. Now, should you throw your fear away? No, we're not telling people to throw away your fear. Fear is healthy. You know, fear gives you heightened awareness. What we're asking you to do is not make decisions based on that fear. If you're fearful of something, you should be asking questions of a trusted health care professional to get the answers you need to make an informed decision. 
I feel like, especially in this community, but really around the country, uh, things were complicated even more this year with the, the murder of George Floyd and social unrest and protests. And on the hierarchy of concerns, being killed by a police officer seems a lot more pressing than, oh, I might get COVID. And it was hard to break through with multiple messages. And also is another example of, can we trust the government? Can we trust the authorities? Do you think that that, that complicated things even more and made things even more difficult to, to kind of get on the right track in, in the Black community? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, what a lot of people are now coming to realize is that we have been killed by police for decades. This is nothing new for us. You know, you grow up learning that you should act a certain way if you get pulled over by a policeman, you know, and you don't look them in the eye and you don't, you know, speak in a disrespectful way because, you know, you might trigger them. And so it wasn't new for us. Um, it was new for the country to see it in, on a larger stage. And so then now you have the, the, um, the misinformation about COVID, you know, you're trying to get the message out about that, but now we have to deal with the civil unrest because you can't just ignore it. And so that was difficult, but you know what? We were able to do it. We were able, and you know, of course, as an infection preventionist and a black person, I always have this duality about me because, you know, I saw George Floyd die. My heart hurt you know, and I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs. But then I would watch the protests and all I could think is, oh my God, I should be out there giving out masks and hand sanitizer, <laughs> you know, because I want to protect my community. And so it's a different type of protection, but I'm not able to disconnect the two. You know, even with the inauguration, you know, my daughter was watching it with me and I got so excited. I said, look, they're, everybody's sitting six feet apart and everybody's got on the mask and she looked at me and she's like, really, that's what you're getting from this? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm still an infection preventionist at heart. That's the first thing I see. Yes, it's wonderful, all the pomp and circumstance, but more importantly, everybody has on a mask. <laughs> you know, that, I, that duality exists for me at all times. You mentioned that you were part of the, the clinical trial, so you've received your vaccine. I just wondered, as somebody who's been living and breathing this and seen the impact, and you really do understand the human toll that this is taking, what was it like for you when you when you actually got that vaccine? What was going through your mind? Well, here's the thing. I don't know if I got the vaccine. It's a double-blind study. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if I got it or not. I think I got the placebo. But either way, I was quite excited, you know, because I'm like, I'm doing my part. I was hoping I got the vaccine because I want it to be protected. But <laughs> um, I had no side effects after I got both injections. So my guess is that I got the placebo. My daughter, on the other hand, after she got her first injection, she um, had some fever, some fatigue, some achiness. And that lasted about a day and a half. And then she was fine. But she was really excited. You know, she was like, we're making history, mom. And I'm like, I know. And she's like, and I'm, I'm going to be protected from COVID. I'm like, I know. So, you know, we're both really excited for that, you know, and you just get a feeling of pride. There's just this, you know, I am doing my part. I am making history. I'm going to be a part of history. And it's just wonderful. 
My last question is sort of looking to the future. In some ways, is it possible that the spotlight that was put onto the disparities that exist in our community, is it possible that maybe we will finally start addressing some of these things? What is your hope that will come out of all this in the future? You know, that is the hope is that now that disparities have, you know, had a flashlight shown on them and people are more aware of them, hopefully we will start to address them. But, you know, you have to be realistic and realize that this is centuries of mistreatment and bias in the medical um, field. And that doesn't go away overnight, you know, and it's not going to go away in a few years. So we have a lot of work ahead of us, but I'm hopeful. I think we can do it. I think we can start to see changes quickly, you know, now that more people are willing. I think it's going to be dependent on our young people to, um, you know, keep holding up the banner of disparities and pushing the agenda forward of, you know, decreasing that gap. And I, I have a lot of, you know, hope for the young people. I really believe that they are going to be the ones to change our country. And so I'm excited, you know, but it's going to take a while. You know, I'm not thinking that, you know, oh, tomorrow's going to be wonderful. No, we're, we're looking at decades of work to come. But um, I think it's coming. It's just going to take us a long time. Well, I really appreciate your continuing commitment to trying to make a difference in the hard work that you're doing. And it's so important. So thank you so much for your time today and for all the work that you do. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. If you know someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay separate, and wear a mask. And we'll get through this together. Mm-hmm.